The Naive Theater of the Air presents Rewired by Matthew Broyles. Episode 21, Scientia et Veritas. Transmission begin, 11 minutes, 23 seconds. Tantalus, recommission power up 855. Status report. Orbit uniform since last transmission. For although Nepenthe calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame. Stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. Decommission power down in 60 seconds. Transmission end 11 minutes, 24 seconds. James Barrett didn't particularly care if it was a stereotype. He could not begin the day without kippers. He'd had a rough time finding them during his initial college years in Texas, but by the time he entered grad school, the young biology student managed to find a shop in Austin that sold them. In his estimation, his academic performance had increased dramatically as a result. In Brooklyn before the secession, locating authentic English kippers had been easy enough. However, the ins and outs of smuggling through the wall nowadays were such that a steady supply was hard to keep. Thus, one of the prizes for his cooperation with the disciples was something of a monopoly on the kipper trade. Speaker Caravelli knew someone who knew someone, who knew only that somewhere in Brooklyn there was an apparently limitless demand for kippers. Barrett had not been up long. Breakfast for him today was lunchtime for the rest of the Republic. Not that there was any noticeable evidence from within his office. Clouds suffused the daylight, rendering it merely a suggestion. The sun's angle here was lower than it had been in Texas. Then it still was for Wayland Lilly. Digging into the smoked herring, he perused his cue. Foch was good at filtering the must-reads from the ignorables. The news net showed a forthcoming public address by Chairman Weiss that afternoon. Parrot smiled. The boy was still pliant, he thought. Too fresh and disoriented to think himself into infallibility. It wouldn't last, but maybe it wouldn't need to. It was just then that a particular item blipped onto the top of the queue. It bore no name, only a sigil. Dropping his fork, Barrett opened it. Hello, old friend. The face on the screen looked wrinkled and grayer than when he'd seen it last. But then, so did his. Barrett checked the source node, unsurprised at its address. A thrill of sensation flooded his cerebrum. Excitement, fear, vengeance, defeat, 
confidence, uncertainty, all there at once, waiting for observation to bring an outcome, like the photon through the slit. His emotions were everywhere and everything, until... Dr. Barrett, Speaker Caravelli is on the line for you. Thank you, Foch. Adam, how very nice of you to call. This is it, isn't it? it it's happening. It is beginning. Patience, Speaker for the Vaughan. All things in time. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, may they bless you. And you. He watched his cue come alive, like a thing possessed. Sitting back from the display, he picked up his fork and returned to his kipper. Ahani was busy that morning. The queue bulged from supporters and enemies alike, and she filtered through them quickly to find the pressure points most likely to exert the desired influence. Powers was true to his word, and had sent over the complete HPL broadcast file downloaded from Shu's server. It sat ponderously on her desk, a hard copy, too volatile to be trusted to electronic transfer just yet. Implicit in Powers' note accompanying the delivery was that she had been made the arbiter of what got onto the net and when. Gabriella ogled the papers covetously, but had to keep the petition flame stoked first, lest it fizzle out and lose momentum. Midway down, a net handle caught her attention. Urizen. She blinked. It couldn't be. Following the link, she sat back in amazement. There he was. For anyone who had known him in the flesh, this epistle was more proof than even a fingerprint. He had outed himself intentionally, but not to the public. To her. I will speak for those who cannot. Gabriella had not been aware of any last shred of doubt remaining within her that he was still alive. But now, raggedly, she felt it tear. And with it, all surviving restraint was lost. Her mind bore down on the object of its hatred and focused its heat onto a single point of blazing light. Her words were ripped from the deepest recesses of her memory of loss, of rejection, of denied destiny. She shaped them, hammering out the imperfections as would a blacksmith laboring over his fire. No more would the shadows enshroud her luminous flame. The intensity grew, until at last the one remaining part of her that was not controlled by the woman in the mirror became alarmed, and Gabriella flung herself from the desk forcibly. Breathing hard, she willed herself to calm down. She would not meet the gaze of the woman. A mirror beckoned nearby, but Gabriella knew that to face her now would be the end. The end of control, and bizarrely, its beginning. She could not allow the woman to control her again. She had to be Gabriella, whoever that was, she thought hazily. The memory of a studious young woman hung tantalizingly in the air, just out of reach. A responsible student, a teacher, a friend. It had all been so long ago, before he changed her. It was his fault, all of it. He had dragged her through this on a promise, a lie. What would his beloved Emerson have said? Sow a character and you reap a destiny? It made a good ending, the woman thought. She rose, sat down, and appended it to her Jeremiah. The patrician face of Grandpa Andreas over the fireplace looked on, approvingly. 
The sound shook the walls of the woman's world. They shimmered for a moment before she reached through and brought the outside in. Taylor? Gabriella, check your cue, now. With a slow amusement, the woman toggled back to her cue and stared. Where once there was a mighty river, now flowed an ocean, rising by the second. Her eyes pinpointed Taylor's name in the fray and opened his message. The movement was not voluntary. It hurt, her knuckles bursting into the plastic glass of the screen, but she wouldn't have traded the sensation for anything. She cursed loudly at the sputtering image, blinking now in a spider web of shattered color, reflecting the woman's sneer back a hundredfold. The bastard. She had him dead to rights now. Only for a moment did she pause to guess the method by which this sad old man's visage had found its way into her home. Glancing at the data contained in Taylor's message, she quickly deduced its source. So be it. We'll play once again, you and I. But not for a man. For mankind. Harry had always felt as if the world were built for some species of small humanoid that he did not belong to. Mashing himself into the observation room with the diminutive Dr. DeLal further validated his theory. Initially, he intended to sit by his father's side as the experiments unfolded. For anyone who didn't know their history, this would have made a great deal of sense. But the built-in stress of being in one another's company was evident immediately upon Harry's arrival in the main room. The old soldier's eyes spoke the request, and Harry's departure granted it. Nonetheless, he would be close at hand for his flesh and blood. DeLaw did not protest when Harry stepped into the cramped room. The little man only looked up from his instruments for a split second to acknowledge the visitor, returning at once to oversee the arcane whirrings of their constantly evolving biocyte contrivance. Harry reflected that the paraphernalia was probably not terribly far removed from the setup that had made rewiring possible all those decades ago. He couldn't even begin to wrap his mind around how one would go about doing such a thing. From his own ventures into hacking and programming, he knew that first drafts were rife with bugs. But code errors on machines were one thing. Lily had presumed to make his first drafts living humans. There had to have been mistakes. Why had he never heard of those? The face of the guru phased into focus, filling the screen before them. Not cold like a camera image, but true to life assembled from the living fiber of his father's optical and auditory centers. Like rewiring itself, the ocular duplication array was non-invasive, requiring only the remote manipulation of neuron pathways via electrodes placed on the cranium. Harry wondered how many drafts of this procedure had come to pass, and about the results of those previous. It hadn't really occurred to him before, the audacity of it. Like most everyone, he'd gotten the classroom digest version of the heroic deductive leap but now, seeing his father's mind under the virtual knife and the business-like expression on Lily's face as he poked around in the recesses of human consciousness, the whole thing took on a sinister cast. He felt as if he should say something, but damned if he knew what. Subject QVI, can you hear me? Yes. In the observation room, Dalal pushed a key, and a green light flickered briefly from the device behind Lars's head. Seeing the signal, Lily leaned closer to the patient, indicating the restraints built into the examination chair, as yet unfastened. I'm sure you're familiar with the procedure, Sergeant. 
These are for your protection as well as ours. I understand. Do it. Carefully and quickly, Lilia fixed the straps, binding the subject to the chair. Harry tensed along with his father. His eyes remained fixed on the amulet, still hanging from the old man's neck, still unnoticed. The one thing that had made their journey possible. But their journey was at an end. With a swift, smooth motion, Lily swept the amulet over Lars' head and onto the nearby lab tray. Lars cocked his head as he saw the device for the first time. The confusion quickly turned to anger, and he shot a cold look in Harry's direction, melting through the one-way glass. It was for your own good, Harry thought back at him. He wished it hadn't been necessary. He wished a lot of things. Springing the back of the amulet open with a small screwdriver, Lily popped out its battery, and instantly, there it was, crouching on the doctor's shoulder. Harry and Delal inhaled sharply. Oh, fuck. The old sergeant had never forgotten it was there. Harry peered furtively through the glass, searching for some physical proof of what his father's eyes told them. There was none, save for the screen on the wall behind the patient's head, where Lily could see the ODA feed for himself. Harry remembered the shoe video he'd seen in Free Detroit. This was worse. The creature was fully rendered in his dad's vision. A spindly, matte gray humanoid, small but for its bulbous head, into which were set glinting black eyes that reflected the lights of the room as clearly as Lily's glasses. Where a nose would have been, two dark holes were visible above a cruelly fanged mouth. A monster straight from the movies, Harry thought with horror. The Vorn sneered at Lars, swaying unnaturally from its perch on Lily's shoulder. It seemed to take no notice of its host, instead regarding Lars with a contemptuous gaze. Harry's mind bustled with questions. Had it been doing that the whole time? Did it know the rest of them could see it? Was the damn thing actually real? The feed was projected onto a screen behind the examination chair. Staring at the image curiously for a moment, Lily turned to his data pad. No lobe stimulation had been applied. This was Selden's default setting. He fretted fitfully with his thoughts. Given these conditions, what would he be risking by applying further animation of the lobe? And yet he knew Barrett had done it already. As much as he hated to, it would be wise for him to consult with Vincent at this point. Subject QVI, I'll be right back. <sighs> Stepping out into the break room, Lily found Vincent busily scribbling notes. Crouched beside the prostrate and trance-addled form of Nina, Lily cocked his head. When did this start? 65 seconds ago, as I knew it would. This happened in Brooklyn. Actually, I'm not certain of that. I dared not confirm my hypothesis under James's watch. That hypothesis being? That we are witnessing transplanar activity between two Vorn. Possibly communication or some other interaction which we lack the means to describe. What happened when you turned up the lobe stimulation on Selden? Vincent smiled, her satisfaction evident. She was no longer the vagabond nut job. He needed her expertise. Why don't we go find out together? I'm not proceeding unless I know. Yes, you are. Only a fool would let this opportunity go, and you are no fool. That remains to be seen. I accept this one-time observation of correlative activity between a superseer and a supersource, but that is far from an endorsement of any transdimensional alien life. I understand. As a fellow proponent of the scientific method, I agree that further study is required. That's why we're here. Then tell me what you know. 
When subjected to lobe stimulation, and occasionally without such intervention, Sergeant Selden experiences physical attack by any nearby Vorn. The word physical may be out of place there. I am referring to what Selden experiences from his own perspective, nothing more. What does he experience it doing to him? It climbs onto his chest, engorges its fangs into his neck, and extracts a substance or energy of indeterminate nature. Are there any biological changes which correlate with this mental activity? Oh, quite a few. All indicative of extreme psychological stress, very like the state one enters in a combat zone. So as you say, from his perspective, he's under attack. Yes, and his body responds accordingly. But nothing outside the normal parameters of field combat trauma. Well, that's precisely the problem. Those indicators vary by individual and circumstance. The science is not black and white. You know what I mean. Are there any signs of schizophrenic or hallucinogenic interference? Not that we have seen. Apart from the great bug-eyed things, anyway. Dr. Lilly, with all due respect, have you considered the possibility that you are too close to be an objective observer? That because you fear what the data may mean, you will not accept clear findings as they present themselves scientifically? There's nothing clear about this. No, not yet. But without considering the existence of the Vorn as a possible outcome, you are proceeding along a highly subjective course of research aimed at proving a negative. Casting his eyes down at Nina, he drew in a deep sigh. (sighs) I will concede that point. However, you must be aware of the logical position you've put yourself in by accusing me of choosing a side. I'm aware of the hypocrisy, yes. Perhaps working together, we can both approach the matter in a more balanced fashion. Perhaps. Turn him off! Turn the son of a bitch off! What? Who? Who the fuck do you think? Turn Selden's ODA off! He's broadcasting the whole goddamn universe! Both doctors' eyes went wide with panic. They rushed into the main lab room, Haley close behind. Lars cursed and twisted sharply, tied to his chair. The screen behind him filled with Vorn, riding atop their hosts. Arshad, cut the power! Shut the entire building off! In the observation room, Harry fought not to shit himself. He cracked his head on shelves overhead, trying to dodge the frantic form of Dr. Delal, who was twisting knobs and opening panels madly. At last, he reached a large, bulky set of switches. With a loud snap, all the lights went out. James Barrett reviewed the speech in his head as a makeup artist sponged base onto the higher reaches of his forehead. As a matter of principle, he would not use a teleprompter. If one expected words to be remembered by others, he reasoned, one should be able to remember them oneself. The BDFHQ media staff had been caught somewhat off guard by the call for a net broadcast, given that Chairman Weiss was addressing the Republic just a few hours later. But they would not, could not anymore, say no to Dr. Barrett. He had informed Weiss and advised him to proceed with his own speech as planned. A one-two punch, leaving no room for doubt as to the unified message being sent from the new administration. Barrett could of course take no responsibility for the synchronicity, but the chairman didn't need to know that. At the center of a black-coated crowd, Adam Caravelli swept in at last. Per Barrett's instructions, the speaker was not to appear on camera with him but could issue his own address afterwards through his own channels using the BDF Media Center's resources. The same invitation would be extended to the VEF, but only after the conclusion of the doctor's address. 
the opposition would be in a perpetually defensive position for quite some time, Barrett knew. Caravelli was well aware and smiled broadly as he approached. Doctor, beautiful day, huh? Unseasonably so, yes. And early spring, absolutely, but uh, you're busy. We'll talk later. Yes, I'm sure we will. The podium's crest, previously set up with the chairman's seal, now bore the more general seal of the Republic Council. An upraised fist, pierced by a single lightning bolt. The Republic's motto was embossed across the bottom. Scientia et Veritas. A small crowd of reporters, pulled by curiosity from the vicinity of the chairman's office, gathered in the gallery. Barrett would be taking no questions, but he liked having a physical audience whenever possible, as the impact of his words could be measured in real time, each reaction setting the pace for the next phrase. Man was not built to inspire glass lenses, he maintained, but he had spoken into the electronic void when necessary. Today was the best of both worlds. Advancing on the proscenium, he fell into the familiar patriarchal posture he had worn since the advent of the Republic. As a councilman, he had kept his profile low, reducing the opportunities for attack by pushing his more controversial agendas through proxies. To the general public, he was the grand old man of rewired science, Lily's East Coast heir, which would make his address today all the more effective, he reflected for a brief moment as he received the all-clear from the broadcast booth. The net was listening. Fellow citizens of Diaspora, what I bring you today may be categorized in many ways. Revelation, enlightenment, clarity, all words dancing around a central concept, truth. The truth I give you on this day is manifold. For to convey the essential truth, I must confess to you a singular one. I have been complicit in a lie. It was a necessary lie, one which has allowed our community to flourish without undue intervention from the would-be authorities outside our borders. But today, I confess what you have no doubt already guessed. My friend, mentor, and fellow scientist Dr. Wayland Lilly is alive. An audible intake of breath issued from the mass of reporters, which was steadily growing in number. Barrett took the cue and allowed a moment for the information to be processed. Upon the eve of the reclamation and its sister revolutions, it was decided at the highest levels that if Dr. Lilly's continued existence and whereabouts were an ongoing concern of the wide authorities, as of course they would be, the military posture of our adversaries would continue in a state of active belligerence. After all, it was their reaction to his public declaration which touched off the senseless violence that followed, leading to a holocaust that no civilized society could condone. To prevent further atrocities, Dr. Lilly's legacy was made publicly posthumous. As we hoped, this development slowed the engines of war, and the stalemate which endures today was established. Given this knowledge, you are no doubt asking yourselves why, after 28 years of relative non-aggression between our two worlds, this central target of the corporations and their lapdogs should be revealed to be alive and well. It is a question that we, your public servants have considered carefully. None but the most extraordinary circumstances could be allowed to disturb the stability of the diaspora nations. But circumstances have arisen which cannot be described as anything other than extraordinary. By now, I'm certain that the majority of you have seen the images broadcasting via satellite from Dr. Lilly's laboratory in Texas. What once were rumors, bordering upon superstition, have now been affirmed with scientific certainty.
by none other than Wayland Lee himself. The Vaughan are among us. An abrupt cacophony of mutters and phone calls broke out in the back of the room as journalists fought for position in the race to the top of the news feeds. Speaker Caravelli kept his unobtrusive position in the far corner, his aides waving off the occasional microphone-bearing correspondent. I realize that there are those who receive this news with trepidation, even terror. And seeing these images, I am well aware why this may be so. But if ever you trusted the good word of Dr. Lilly, I implore you to trust him now. For those of us who study the Vaughan phenomenon have become slowly but steadily aware. We as a species owe a great debt to the little understood symbiosis which we have shared with the Vaughan for millennia. Indeed, some in the scientific community have postulated that the advent of that very symbiosis was a spark which set us alight into the world of sentience. With further study, we may find that the missing link we have been searching for since the time of Darwin is not in fact of this earth. That which separates us from the animals also brings us into unity with the cosmos. These are lofty words, and I confess a certain amount of humility as I consider what we have stumbled upon before our unbelieving eyes. Some among us behold the faces of these brothers in consciousness and see predators, but they are judging with human eyes. A dog witnessing a human smile does not understand that the bearing of teeth does not signify aggression. In view of this new reality, we must re-examine our instincts. Did we not learn this during our separation from the wild world? Indeed, I believe it is indisputable that we, the guardians of free thought upon this planet, have an obligation to reason. For such a discovery as we are witnessing today is an impossibility for the tethered minds of our wild counterparts. Accusations abound that the Diaspora scientific establishment has grown secretive, disregarding the people it is called to serve. In answer to those allegations, I give you this token of good faith from Dr. Lilly himself. Behind Barrett, a warmly lit image of Lilly appeared, his shoulder graced with the shockingly lifelike Vorn, its mouth twisted into an alien approximation of a smile. The now-packed media room exploded, reporters shouting questions over Barrett's sincere but stoic expression. He gave them a few moments to get it out of their system, finally raising his hands patiently to calm them so that he might continue. And what of concerns that this development will set in motion a new wave of attacks from the masses of our enslaved brethren abroad? We know already that the truth is their greatest enemy. Thus it is that I issue a challenge to the powers who would hold back humanity from a complete understanding of what it is to be human. Prove us wrong, for if you cannot, the light of truth will shine once more in the minds of humankind the world over. You may believe that you can stop us, but as we now realize, we have allies which you cannot possibly overcome. Allies which may only be understood fully if we as humans unite in shared communion with them. We are in contact with the Vaughan, and they with us. Can you say the same? Do you truly believe that the persistence of our freedom is an accident of history? Or can you see the bigger picture at last? Can you lay down your fear of the unknown long enough to know the universe as it truly is? It is my and Dr. Lilly's fervent hope that you will. Let this discovery be the bridge that finally unites our species. Thank you for your patience, and may the light of science shine upon us all. The rumble burst into a roar. Barrett's podium was now adrift in a sea of microphones, barking journalists and flashing cameras. 
The doctor was unmoved, a benevolent smile affixed to his patrician face. BDF security stepped in to provide a gap through which Barrett could make his way out of the clamoring throng. His old college drama training at the ready, he even allowed a tear to fall from one eye as he exited. At the entrance to Barrett's office, Foch floated in a sea of interview requests and protests from VEF members who'd gotten wind of the address as they passed through downtown. His bureaucratic dismissiveness was in full flower as he issued vague assurances of callbacks and clarifications. Seeing the cloud of BDF officers approaching with Barrett at its core, his assistant shot him a slightly raised eyebrow. The doctor made a barely perceptible shrug of his shoulders in response, as if to say that this is what he paid him for. Privately, Foch's mind was fixed upon a deeper thought, one that concerned what exactly it was he had been paid for and why. But in the crush of media, such considerations were pushed well back from the front burner. He could wait, for now, but not forever. You've been listening to the naive theater of the air performance of Rewired, featuring Janice McCall as the voice of the satellite, Derek Davis as Dr. James Barrett, Dan Herman as Eugene Foch, Aidan Wright as speaker Adam Caravelli, Ed Rogers as Dr. Waylon Lilly, Petra Wright as Dr. Gabriella Neidhart, Joshua Busey as Taylor Hockaday, Reed Perry as Lars, Mana as Dr. Romana Vinson, and Keegan McEnroe as Colonel Levi Haley. Written and narrated by Matthew Broyles. Theme music by Paul Shapira. I'm Little Jack Melody. Tune in next time for episode 22, A Monster for a Monster. <laughs>